there was a police officer who was trying to prevent that from happening. And this police officer starts talking to him and slowly and methodically starts getting closer and closer to him inch by inch, all the while keeping his gaze on him and keeping him engaged in a conversation. And then finally, as he gets closer and closer, he's just inches away from him. The police officer looks at this man and says, you surely don't want to do this. Why do you want to jump off this bridge? And then the man says, well, before I jump off, I have all the time in the world to describe to you why I'm jumping off. My wife left me. My business uh, is bankrupt. And then for 30 minutes, he went on and on and on about things that led him to make this decision. And guess what happened? After 30 minutes, the police officer and this guy, both of them, jumped off the bridge. It's a farcical story, a humorous one, for sure. But the fact of the matter is, despair often is contagious. Despair often is contagious. Contrast this with another story. There was a countess, this is a real story, not a farcical one. There was this countess in Russia, and she came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and she was very vocal about her faith, personal faith, and her testimony. And so the czar, what he did was, he took her and imprisoned her with the vilest of criminals, with the vilest of Russian criminals for one day. And all of a sudden, he brought her back into his court, and very mockingly, And sardonically asked this question. Well, are you ready now to renounce your silly faith and come back to the pleasure of the court? And then she said, being one day in prison, I've still known the joy of Jesus Christ. That is much more than all the pleasures and the joys that your court czar could ever offer me in my life. Really? Is such a joy even possible for us as Christians? Is it possible that we as Christians could be joyous in our workaday worlds? Is it possible that a mom who is running after three kids, who is busy so much, and so much of her day is taken up in that, could be joyous in this way? Is it possible that a student who's, who spends about eight hours at, uh, in college and comes back and is so tired is, can also be joyous this way in Christ Jesus? Is it possible that all of us seated here this morning could have the joy of Christ Jesus that this countess was talking about? And some of us who are really honest to ourselves and perhaps closer to reality have realized that it is not the case with most of us seated here. And that's why we try praying with the psalmist, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now, something happened uh, last month, and uh, this is what got me thinking, and probably this is the result, the message is the result of all that started a month ago. I was going to speak to some of the evangelists of Karnataka. That morning, I got up to get ready and drive to Iblur. And as I got up, And I went into the bathroom and I came back, I brushed my teeth. I had very bad GERD. And acid was coming up my esophagus. I could feel the sour taste of acid right here. And I didn't didn't think I was going to speak 
I, I had no mood to speak. I could not speak, in fact. And I just spoke a sentence or two with my wife and I coughed because of the sour taste and the burning that it was causing in my throat. And so I prayed and immediately there was a beep on my phone. I checked the message and it was from a dear brother in our church. I, I respect him and love him so much. And so although I was rushing, I checked the message. And the question asked, ironically, in the economy of the humor of God, Ravent, do you have joy? Now here I am with this throat and I have to speak and all of that. And I said, I immediately, uh, without any hesitation, sent back to him and I said, yes, I, I do have joy. And that brother responded by saying, why do I not always have this joy? And so that got me thinking, and we have here this message as a result, and uh, I've been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks, at least, uh, seriously. And so the question comes up, how can this kind of joy be restored in our lives? How can this Christian joy, the joy of salvation, be restored to our lives? Now, this is not happiness that I'm talking about. Happiness depends on circumstances. I could be sad and yet be joyous in Christ Jesus. These are two different things, and I'm sure you know the difference, so I'm not going to dwell on that. But how can we have this joy of the Christian? Leon Morris, a great scholar of the Bible, in his book, The Cross in the New Testament, says this, and listen to this very carefully, please. The idea in grace is closely connected with that of joy. The idea in grace is closely connected with that of joy. Basically, he says, grace means that which causes joy. Grace means that which causes joy. Now, keep this at the back of your minds and listen to what Phil Hughes says in his book, But for the Grace of God. He wrote this, The doctrine of grace lies at the very heart, not merely of all Christian theology, but at the core of all Christian experience. Grace doesn't just merely lie at the heart of Christian theology, but at the heart and the core of our very Christian experience itself, which tells me that we lack joy because we don't understand grace very well. We perhaps lack joy because we don't have a clear understanding of what grace is all about. And grace, God's grace, it's not some stuffy theologically doctrine to be filed away in our notes. It is the most practical, beautiful truth in all of God's word. It ought to be at the core of your daily experience and my daily experience as well. And that brings joy to our hearts. So the questions come up in our minds. What is grace and how does it work in my life? What is grace and how does it work in my life? Or how does the grace of God affect our lives? Or better, what do I need to understand about grace for my joy to be restored in my life? What do I need to understand about grace for joy, this Christian joy, the joy of salvation to be restored in my life. Now, these questions have been dealt with, thankfully, right in the first century AD. Paul, in writing to Titus, 
In chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, he discusses the conduct of different individuals in churches. And then he dealt with these instructions. He gave them instructions in fact first. And he dealt with these instructions by dividing them into various categories of people. And he did that to establish order in churches. And then as he divided them into various groups of people... Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, slaves and all of that. Titus chapter 2. He says to Titus that all of his presuppositions in giving these instructions have their presuppositions in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The presuppositions, the underpinnings of his instructions are in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today's passage will reveal to us, it's a very simple thing and yet it's a very profound passage that we have to understand. Today's passage will reveal to us two things that we need to understand about grace. The understanding of which will restore to us the joy of Christian life. Two things about grace that will restore the joy of Christian life to us. So Paul explains these two things in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. And uh, that was the reading for this morning. Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. I have the outline up here as usual. So please follow along. As you see, it's a very simple outline. But uh, it is a very, very profound thing. This is going to be a very simple message, but often some of the joy is found in the very simplistic of things in Christian faith. So let's look at it. In verses 11 and 12, you will see that God's grace brings salvation and enables us to lead holy lives. God's grace brings salvation and enables us to lead holy lives. The appearance of God's grace has brought redemption and facilitates holy living. And Paul, in trying to explain this, he talks about two things. Number one, first thing he says, grace appeared in Jesus Christ and brought deliverance. Grace appeared in Jesus Christ and brought deliverance. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace permeated Paul's thinking. In fact, uh, the famous New Testament scholar Edmund Hebert once said, Paul could not think of Christian truth and conduct apart from God's grace. Paul could not think about Christian truth and conduct apart from God's grace. So when Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared, he is referring to the embodiment of grace that has appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and truth have their embodiment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he's talking about the appearance of grace, he's talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in his first coming. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there was no grace in the Old Testament? Was there no grace in the Old Testament? Of course there was. Anybody who was saved, whether in the Old Testament, right from Adam until now, has been saved by grace. And God's grace alone, it is never by works. And Paul clarifies that. But what does Paul mean by saying grace has appeared? Remember in John chapter 1, uh, verse 17, the verse says, For the law came through Moses. Can you finish that? But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What Paul is meaning here is this. God could have rightly judged us. 
God could have rightly condemned us. But John 3.17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We deserve judgment. We were sinners, as all the brothers this morning explained to us, reminding us very clearly, we deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of God, but the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Paul says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, to all people. What does it mean? Does that mean all people are automatically saved in the world? Is there nobody going to hell? No, that's universalism. We don't believe that. But what Paul means by saying that salvation has appeared to all people is that salvation has appeared to all kinds of people in this context. In this context, I said Paul began the chapter by categorizing people. He talked about older men, older women, younger men, younger women, slaves and all of that. So Paul is saying that the grace of God and salvation has appeared to all types of people, even to the most destitute, even to the most detestable of people in the Roman world, even the slaves. Salvation has appeared to all types of people. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Let me remind you this morning that the good news of God's grace is that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. And the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, he called himself the chief of sinners and he experienced God's grace through the cross. And that's why he is clearly explaining to us that it is grace that has brought salvation appearing in the person of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an illustration to drive this home. Suppose you are standing in a line in the bank, and you have your paycheck. We're not used to paychecks, but but let's imagine this. You have your paycheck, and you have to get it cashed. And you're standing in the line. And all of a sudden, I come, and I pull your arm by force. I wrench it, and I pull you out of the the line, and uh, straight away pull you out of the bank. You would be very, very upset with me, wouldn't you? Obviously. But... If I told you, if I told you later on that the reason why I did that in such an embarrassing way for you, everybody looking at you, and even you're losing the spot in the line, is because the bank had been taken over by terrorists. And that is the only way I could have saved you. Then all the frustration would turn to a kind of thanks for me for what I did. Before we recognize the grace of God, we must all understand about what we've been reminded this morning again and again, that we have been under the wrath of God at one point in our lives. And God's grace came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to us who did not deserve. Bringing salvation to all of us who did not deserve. To use a phrase from Charles Spurgeon, he say, he talks about a rope around our neck and it is God's grace that cuts the rope and lets us go free, although we do not deserve it. And I'm glad most of us seated here have experienced God's grace that brought us salvation. God's grace that brought us salvation. God accepted you and me with no conditions whatsoever when we put our trust and exclusive faith in the atoning sacrifice of his incarnate son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Although we were helplessly sinful, God in in Christ forgave us completely. 
It's only by his infinite grace that you and I were saved, not by moral character, not by works of righteousness, not by any church going, or not by any commandment keeping. Grace appeared in Christ and brought us deliverance. Second thing, grace trains us to forsake sin and iniquity. Grace trains us to forsake sin and iniquity. Verse 12a, the first part of verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. When you experience God's grace, which is God's unmerited favor that is found in Christ Jesus, it motivates us to want to please him more and more. You see, grace here is not sloppy living. Grace here is not something that gives us license to live the kind of life that we want to live. Grace trains us. Grace motivates us in godly living. And as you and I read God's word more and more, we begin to realize that there's much sin still in our lives and we need to change because it displeases the Lord. And so we begin to walk on the path that Jesus described as carrying across daily and following him. And that involves two things is what Paul says. Number one, that includes saying no to ungodliness. Grace trains us to say no to ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Who is an ungodly person? Ungodliness or an ungodly person refers to somebody who does not have reverence for God and thus lives by ignoring God. He does not have reverence for God and thus lives by ignoring God. And it obviously refers to a person who is outrightly and openly immoral or evil. But it also includes the outwardly nice person who goes to church and who simply does not have any place for God in his life. He simply does not have any place for God in his life. His everyday life is uh, organized, motivated, and run by self with no place for God in his life. And the person who has tasted God's grace, people like you and I, must say no to ungodliness. Must say no to ungodliness. My dear friends, the question this morning that I have for myself and for you is this. Do we say no to ungodliness in everything that we do? In our thoughts? In our decisions, in our careers, do we say no to ungodliness? That's the first thing that Paul says. Grace trains us to say no to ungodliness. Secondly, uh, grace trains us to say no to worldly desires. This refers to desires that are characteristic of the world system. And they are opposed to God. And John describes them as the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. And the pride of life. They include selfishness, pride, seeking after status, seeking after possession, power, money, and living for sinful pleasure rather than finding God and pleasure in Him above all else. And grace trains us to say no to both ungodliness and worldliness as well, because His grace and God in Jesus Christ as given to us, are much sweeter than any pleasure that any uh, worldly thing can offer. Thirdly, grace trains us positively to live holy lives. Verse 12b, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To live self-controlled, 
upright and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God instructs us in godliness. And the word instructing here means child training. It is tutoring, it is teaching and child training. You see, grace again, let me emphasize this again and again. I cannot emphasize this enough. Grace does not mean sloppy living. Grace does not mean that I can live the kind of life I want to live. Grace, rightly understood, Paul says, trains us, in fact, in godliness. Grace trains us to live self-controlled life. Grace trains us to live righteous life. Grace trains us to live godly life in this present age. And throughout the New Testament, this present age is characterized as an evil age. This evil age. You know, let me, let me just uh, make this comment before I move forward. Um, I know it does, it's of no relevance to us, but it's just setting the perspective, you know, the American elections that are going on. I find, when I read all of these things, the articles that are coming out and all of that, I find evangelicals divided between Trump and Hillary Clinton. And I watched all the three debates. Uh, I'm interested in politics, and so I watch Indian debates and American debates. I watched all the three debates, and having watched that, oh, there is only one thing that came to my mind. And let me just make that comment and move forward. Charles Spurgeon once said this, and that is the thing that came to my mind. He said, when you're faced with two evil choices, guess what? Choose none. When you're faced with two evil choices, choose none. There is nothing called the lesser of two evils. If there is anything like the lesser of two evils that exists, it still is evil. And Christians are called to renounce and deny evil and be salt and light. And grace trains us. Grace trains us to live godly lives in this evil world, in this present world. Three, three words that Paul uses. Number one, it trains us to live sensibly, which means in a self-controlled manner, not yielding to various passions and impulses. Number two, grace trains us to live righteously, it refers to a life of integrity and uprightness in our dealings with other church members, in our dealings with colleagues at work, in our dealings with our neighbors. Live, live righteous life. It means confirming to God's standards of conduct as revealed in the commandments of his word. And finally, it helps us to, it trains us to live godly lives in this present evil age. A godly life is a life of devotion towards God. It's a holy life beginning on the heart level. And it means to live a Godward life, knowing that he examines my heart and your heart. You confess sinful thoughts to him and live in the love and fear of God. Let me uh, just finish this point with a story that we are all very, very familiar with. It is a story of John Newton. John Newton found himself in a vessel when he was sailing once. And uh, there were these high waves that came and beat against the vessel. And all of a sudden, he found himself being tossed uh, about in those high waves and the timber was breaking apart and all the other sailors were trying to pump water out of the boat that was getting in and they were trying to block all the holes through which water was getting in and he was the man who was manning all the pumps and he was at the steering as well trying to steer the boat or the vessel to a safe place and all of a sudden he comes to know and understand 
that he had lived a very debauched life, so much so that even his godless companions used to call him an impious fellow. And then he understood how it is only the grace of God that could save him, and that did save him in that boat. And we know what happened. We know the rest of the story. He went on to write that amazing Him that we all sing and love so much. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. But I love the last paragraph or stanza. I don't know the, the, the language for songs, but uh, the last stanza, is it? Okay. Uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as a sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. God's grace trains us, it brings us salvation, and it trains us to live godly lives. So in verses 11 and 12, we saw that God's grace brings salvation and enables us to lead godly lives. Then there's a second thing we need to understand about God's grace, and that is in verses 13 and 14. They say, God's grace enables us to live in godliness by looking ahead and looking behind. The forward look is to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The backward look is to the cross and all of the implications of the cross on our lives. Two things again Paul says, and I'll bring my message to a close. First thing, grace teaches us to look ahead to Christ's second coming. Verse 13, can we recite this with me without looking at the Bible? Waiting for our blessed hope. Only Jobin is doing it. Waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. God's grace instructs us to look forward with a hope. To look forward to that blessed hope as he puts it. To the second coming of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In his first coming, his appearance was in grace. We saw that bringing salvation to all types of men. And during his first coming, his glory was mostly veiled. But in his second coming, he will come in glory. And that's why Paul calls it the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And his coming is a blessed hope to all of us who are looking forward to it. Because, because then we will finally and fully experience all of the promises of salvation that are given to us. If your focus and my focus is set on the hope, the blessed hope that the Bible is talking about so clearly, then I think 1 John 3 and verses 1 through 3 should be a reality in our lives. Do you remember those verses? Beloved, how, how vast is the measure of grace that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God Ah, oh, by the way, John says, that's what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it did not know him. And he says, beloved, we are the children of God. But what we will be has not yet been made known to us. But when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him just as he is. Can you finish the rest of the verse? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The hope that we have in the second coming and the grace that enables us is to 
is to give us that hope and keep us on that hope and to let us live the kind of life lives that are worthy of his calling you know if you got a call from the rashtrapati bhavan I give this illustration because I, I was recently in Delhi with my wife, stood right in front of the gate of Rastrapati Bhavan, just brushed the gates almost and came back. Uh, so we were in Rastrapati Bhavan. So if you get a call, just whimsically, from the Rastrapati Bhavan saying that the president is going to come and live with you for one whole week in your house and your living room and your kitchen will be on national television for one week, how would your house be? Sparkling would be an understatement, isn't it? My house definitely would be sparkling. And by the way, in connection to this, I remember, uh, I don't know why these American elections are coming into my mind, but, but, but let me think and speak in, in that way. It, I don't have that in my manuscript. Chuck Colson once made this comment. He said, the kingdom of God does not come on Air Force One. But we sometimes live and act and argue in a way as though it does really matter as to who's flying Air Force One and the kingdom of God is really connected to that. But coming back to the illustration of the president and coming to our house, if our houses are going to sparkle because the president is coming, Paul is saying somebody much greater than the president is coming and he calls him a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a reality. He is coming back. He is a great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, just as a young bride whose husband is away in the military eagerly looks forward to his return, you and I must look forward with that eager expectation of his coming and get rid of any sin in our lives. Dr. Billy Graham, when he was a young evangelist, he was called to the office of Conrad Adenauer. Conrad Adenauer, I think, is one of the very few politicians in my estimate, who truly merits the word statesman. And this man, who had to literally pick up Germany from, from all of the brokenness, uh, he, was, he was the mayor of Cologne and then went on to become uh, the chancellor of the West Germany Republic. Uh, he once called Dr. Billy Graham to his office, and then he asked him this question point blank. Dr. Graham, do you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Dr. Graham said, I was a young evangelist. I was very fearful to be in the presence of such a world statesman. And so I just stammered out these words. I said, sir, if I really didn't believe in the resurrection, I wouldn't have any gospel left to preach. And then he said, Conrad Adenauer just got up from his chair, walked to the end of the room, looked outside the window at all of these fallen city that was broken. He turned to Dr. Graham and made this statement. He said, Dr. Graham, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. This coming from an unbeliever, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. We have this glorious hope, the hope of resurrection, that he's coming back and the one who's coming back is our great God and Savior who's going to raise us with a body exactly like his body when he had, that he had when he was raised from the dead. Second, grace instructs us to look back at the cross 
and its purpose. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who was zealous for good works. Who gave himself up for us on the cross? That who refers to whom? The great God and Savior. Isn't it enough to call him God and Savior? But he's a great God and Savior. So this great God and Savior gave himself up for our sins in the past. And we look back at the cross. And Paul is saying that this past grace that was given to us on the cross was given to produce godliness in us in the present. Christ gave himself himself up for us on the cross that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. The word redeem would have gotten the attention of any slave. You know what redemption is. In the slave market, people were sold there and they could buy a ransom or a prize and buy that slave and redeem him from the slave market. That is the word that Paul uses for us. We were in the clutches of sin. We could, not be, we could not redeem ourselves. We could not pay the price. But Christ, by his blood on the cross, paid the price for us, calling it ransom, and redeemed us from sin. Christ gave himself for us. But Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people that are his own. A purify for, him, uh, purify for himself a people that are his own. Now, one reason I think we partake of the Lord's table every week is to remind ourselves again and again. In fact, didn't Jesus exactly say say that, do this in what of me? Remembrance of me. We look back at the cross and understand all the purposes and the implications of the cross that are on our lives. The cross was done as an event in history only to produce godliness in a people that he's purchased for himself, you and I. And then Paul says, eager to do good deeds or zealous for good deeds. Good deeds refer to deeds that are done out of holy devotion to God. And Paul says, people who are eager, like zealots who are eager to wrench the kingdom from Roman Empire, we should be zealous to do good works. We ought to be totally devoted to serving our master. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? This morning's sermon basically says this, the grace of God should result in your present commitment to deny what God detests and to pursue what God values. This brings joy and restores joy to our Christian lives. God's grace should make you live a life pleasing to the one who's called you in his grace. When we do that, we live joyfully and we have the joy. Two things we saw. Number one, God's grace brings salvation and enables us to lead holy lives. Number two, God's grace enables us to live in godliness by looking ahead and looking behind. I have my final illustration, so bear with me please and listen to me with undivided attention please. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book called Shadow of the Almighty. Um, Some of you may have picked that up. And it is subtitled this way, The Life and Testament of Jim Elliot, her husband. Jim Elliot, when he was only 28 years old, uh, we all know the story. He and four of his companions were speared to death. 
and uh, when they went to minister to the Indians in Ecuador. And here are some of the quotes from his diary that show how he exemplified the text that we just read in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. God's grace absolutely motivated him. At age 22, he wrote in page 110, I see clearly now that anything, whatever it is, if it not be on the principle of grace, it is not of God. Regarding living in the light of the second coming, at the age of 20, he wrote to his 15-year-old sister this way, Fix your eyes on the rising morning star. Live every day as if the Son of Man were at the door and gear your thinking to the fleeting moment. Walk as if the next step would carry you across the threshold of heaven. At the age of 22, he said this, How poorly will appear anything but a consuming operative faith in the person of Christ when he comes. How lost, alas, a life lived in any other light. And his entire life, we know, portrayed intense zeal for the Lord and his work. And in the book, Through the Gates of Splendor, he wrote this. Wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be in the will of God. That's how God's grace works. It worked in the life of Paul. It worked in the life of Jim Elliot. It worked in the life of all great men of God. But it does work in our lives of all the people seated here. It saves us and then trains us and motivates us to be godly people in this present evil age, zealous for good deeds. As we look forward to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience. May the Lord bless you all and let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for reminding us about how this joy that we so long for as Christians is essential, not just possible. And it is brought into our lives by an understanding of what grace is. Thank you for showing us once again from the text of scripture about what grace really means. Thank you for the grace that brought us salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that grace doesn't just sit quiet, but it trains us to say no to worldly pleasures and ungodliness. And it trains us to be sensible, to live righteous lives in this present evil age. Father, help us to be people of grace, understanding grace and living out grace in our lives. Pray, O Lord, that this joy through the understanding of, of, of grace, could be restored in our lives, O Lord. Pray, O Lord, for each one of us seated here. Help us to be ever thankful, just like Jim Elliot was, about the grace of God that has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And also, always to be looking forward to the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the reminders from your word, from, from songs and all of that, O Lord. Also pray for the rest of the activities that are lined up for today. Pray, O Lord, that may your son's name be glorified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name.